Hello and welcome to the Monsieur So British podcast, written and read by me, Ian Moore. I'm a stand-up comedian, a best-selling author. I live in France with my wife, three Anglo-French children, an array of mentally challenged rescued animals, and I run a B&B there, which was my post-Brexit plan, but which is far more successful than I actually did plan. I wanted the easy life, even got it at times, and have spent the last few years making it harder for myself. This podcast is about how I continually manage to do that. And while you're here and haven't been put off by that start, please share this as much as possible or review it or whatever as I'm in the market for a new literary agent and it all helps. Anyway, enough self-regarding nonsense. Let's crack on. Monsieur So British, episode 13, Unlucky for Some. One of the things that struck me while I was bathing in the glow of and wandering around New York was how different my life might have been if I'd gone there when I was much younger. If I had, I'm not sure I would have ever left. I wouldn't be married to Natalie, nor have three amazing sons or a dream place in France. Would I even be a comedian? Would I have fulfilled my early ambition to become a film writer or a director? Would I even now be an obese chili dog eating NYPD desk sergeant? with a string of failed marriages, investing all the money he has in a next season ticket. It's all sliding doors idle speculation, obviously, and though I love my trip and the place, I wouldn't swap anything I have now. Nothing. Zilch. I promise. Well, a few things. The French health system is the best in the world, by all accounts. Certainly, I've always found it attentive and there when I need it. I don't have to wait for ages for an appointment, and, my own GP aside, medical staff are remarkably patient and understanding. But has this catch-all health safety net created a nation of inveterate hypochondriacs? I only say this because just before my trip away, I finally changed my GP. It was a big step to take, and I should have done it years ago, but it had now become imperative. In order to qualify for full reimbursement of medical fees, my GP has to create a dossier ALD, a private dossier that is vetted by Social Security to monitor someone with long-term illness. Well, seeing as he'd rubbished all my chronic inflammatory rheumatoid arthritis diagnoses thus far, on the flimsy basis that my rheumatologist is Romanian, I didn't fancy my chances. A new doctor arrived in town and I joined the mass exodus from old to new, and she's good. But combine her new prescriptions with my existing ones, and it's more than one body can handle. Put it this way, if all my current specialist referrals were to work at the same time, it would look like a pack of hyenas ripping at a kill, or a medical gangbang. I'm not happy with your blood pressure, she said. Is stress normal for you? Oh, uh, umper. She prescribed some tablets and wrote a letter to a cardiologist she insisted I see. And uh, those nosebleeds, I think you should see someone for that too. She wrote another letter, this time for an ENT specialist. I'd only gone in to set up this dossier thing. Of course my blood pressure was high. I'm seeing a new doctor. And as for my daily nosebleeds, I'm convinced they're a result of what I consider a botched tooth implant a few years ago. Anyway, I came out more worried than when I went in, which, you know, is no good for someone with my blood pressure issues. My next appointment was with the gastroenterologist, an early morning date that started badly. I've created a new playlist on my iPod, and it's a mixture of favourite songs across all genre, 
musicals to Britpop via late 60s garage psych and mid 70s Philadelphia soul and autobiographies read by the author and each divided into song-length chapters. Specifically, Gene Wilder, David Niven, Carrie Fisher, Catherine Hepburn, Eric Idle, Leslie Phillips and Lauren Bacall. All beautifully read, all funny and all, at times, very, very moving. And as I turned into the car park to see my gastroenterologist, Gene Wilder, I swear, started talking about his wife Gilda Radner going to see a gastroenterologist just after her cancer diagnosis. I stayed listening in the car for a few minutes, and I possibly shouldn't have done so. I'm pro to fatalism anyway, and this seemed just like a portent, so overladen with doom it could have been filmed by Hammer. This gastro appointment had been set up by my rheumatologist to check if I was okay to take the second lot of medicine she prescribed, after the first one had tried to kill me. I mean, it wasn't okay. Obviously, anyone who has the misfortune to watch me eat can tell that my stomach now resembles the firebox of an old steam locomotive, and I told the gastroenterologist that. She was another very businesslike Romanian, my third so far since this all began, and she didn't look happy. Her French wasn't that great, and my French isn't all that it should be either. But then school textbooks rarely have a vocabulary section for stomach issues and stool texture, The thing is, we spluttered our way through the conversation despite the fact that all the medical textbooks in our office were English. One was even called Failed Anti-Reflux Therapy, which seems quite useless as a book idea, and I think the author may have used their time better if they'd looked up, not down. Anyway, she even had a box of after-eights on her desk, so she was clearly an Anglophile and probably an Anglophone. But I didn't think I should presume to speak English, and although she knew I was English, she didn't offer. It must have made painful viewing, but we got there in the end. The end being that I would have to have the full porn star gastro treatment. Tubes in every orifice. I slumped back in the car. In truth, and although I put on a happy face, which sometimes I do, this is all getting me down now. It just feels so relentless and dispiriting. I turned on the engine and began the 40-minute drive home, and the car stereo fired up my iPod and it's random choices from my playlist. I promise you I'm not making any of this up, but the first song was Frightened by Paul Weller, a string-laden ballad about a midlife loss of direction. That was followed by Leslie Phillips talking about the death of his father, and that pretty much set the tone for the drive home. Catherine Hepburn's posthumous letter to Spencer Tracy would segue smoothly into Rogers and Hammerstein's The Man I Used to Be, David Niven, reading John Houston's Humphrey Bogart funeral eulogy, would fade into Jackson C. Frank's The Blues Run the Game. Leslie Phillips would pop up regularly to talk about death, and even Barry Manilow's Copacabana now had darker overtones. I got home just as Eric Idle talked about the death of Robin Williams, a death that, though I, I can't explain why, affected me deeply, quite deeply. By the time I got home, I was an emotional wreck, a barely functioning human being who felt like he'd just heard the soundtrack to his own demise. I'm not preoccupied with death. I've never had a problem getting old, and I hope all this current medical nonsense is over by spring and I've qualified for the miracle drugs. But I may need to help myself by steering clear of most of my cultural choices before that. I stayed there, sat in the car, not wanting to get out, almost willing another black cloud song or death anecdote to come on but needed a lighter release so I could break the spell. Of course, if this had been a Hollywood film, it would have been Eric Idle singing Always Look on the Bright Side of Life, but it wasn't and it isn't. 
I did get my release though. It was Frank Sinatra and Bing Crosby singing Well Did You Ever from High Society. Uplifting, memory laden, consistent in my life since I was young and guaranteed to raise a smile that I needed. Until somebody shoves a bloody great tube through it anyway. Just as an aside to that playlist, it's uncanny how the music can follow an audio chapter and have relevance. At times it feels more targeted than a Facebook ad. I was listening to a chapter from Carrie Fisher's autobiography, Wishful Drinking, which is honest, funny, moving and not for the faint-hearted. It's everything an autobiography should be then. She was reading about when her mother, Debbie Reynolds, had told her pretty late on in life that she, Debbie, had been kidnapped and subject to some very unpleasant sexual abuse. Carrie reads this with her habitual sardonic tone, not ignoring the importance of it, but trying to place it in context with all the other madness she had going on. Well, dear playlist randomizer, what I need then was a palate cleanser, bridge over the troubled water perhaps, blackbird maybe. The penis song by Eric Idle was wholly inappropriate and therefore had me howling with laughter. It would have had the same effect on Carrie Fisher too, I suspect. Anyway, I wasn't in as jaunty mood prior to that. In fact, the opposite. I think what irks me most about my illness or illnesses, current full diagnosis being chronic inflammatory rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis with a double spinal hernia, high blood pressure, soon to be revealed gastric horrors and daily nosebleeds, isn't necessarily the fact of them, though that's obviously a pain in the ass. Or might be. I'll wait for the colonoscopy reports before confirming that. It's more why. Why have I got all this? The French health system, and I say that because that's the one I mean, gives you confidence that you're being looked after, but I still don't know what the root cause of it all is. Nobody seems to know, though they're not exactly dragging their feet in dealing with it. I've no doubt that the UK health system would be much the same. Less immediate, if anecdotal evidence is to be trusted, possibly more up against it, but staffed by bloody heroes nonetheless, intent on keeping people alive. Though for the love of God, I've met people, and frankly that's the last thing the world needs. What I'm saying is, although I feel in good hands, I don't know why I need to be. What's actually caused all this frailty bollocks? Okay, I've done a stupid commute for 15 years, but I'm not obese, I don't smoke, I eat as healthily as on-the-road work allows, no breakfast, a warm lunch and a light sandwich after work. I drink, yes, but as far as I can keep track of the ever-changing guidelines for alcohol consumption, it's currently 21 units for a man, and I manage that easily in one day, no problem, I can probably do more. Exercise is an issue, but then I can't exercise because I have, there you go, see above. It's not hereditary. My dad, though having many health issues, doesn't have the same health issues. My mum, in contrast, and who I haven't spoken to in years, has recently developed rheumatoid arthritis as well, apparently, possibly because she'd heard that I had it and got jealous. Is it mental? Well, now there, you're opening up a whole load of crazy. See the previous sentence, just for starters. I was diagnosed as a manic depressive years ago, but it was specific to a time, I thought. These things come and go, as they do for a lot of people, ups, downs, sideways movements, which can be just as bad as ups and downs, but nobody ever mentions those. And by sideways movements, I mean 
trying to resolve one problem so that you can actually create another. There's neither high nor low, just a constant fixation on repairing the smallest issue to move on to the next small issue, like a platform game. Mania, in other words. Brexit, sorry to bring that up, has an awfully big part to play. I spent two years genuinely fretting about my family being split up, an emotionally debilitating period, but where I still needed to work as a comedian to pay for everything. And there are so many people still in that limbo, by the way, though not the comedian part, obviously, unless you include politicians of both sides. If you're a fan of Brexit and reading this, you really should try living just a small fragment of your life thinking, how do I keep my family together here? Will I be deported? What have I done that makes me so unwelcome? And that's not as a Pole or German or other EU national living in the UK. That's as one of the 1.8 million British people living on the continent. Not all brown luggage, leather tanned expats either. 80% are of working age with families. I can tell you the stress is terrifying. So there's stress, external and internal, lifestyle as well, but it's all very vague. The intention was and still is to cut down and travel. And then my first four gigs in 2020 were in New York, Cardiff, Grenoble and London. I keep being told to rest, take things easy for a bit, live life like a proper country living Frenchman. But, you know, three jobs, three kids and at current count, 14 assorted pets. Fortunately, UDF, the only electricity supplier here, is it still state-owned. And that's despite what they tell you and despite EU fines, which are cheaper to pay than to break up the monopoly. Well, UDF had heard about my need to unwind and de-stress and decided to help. They cut our entire electricity supply. Now that's service. I remember power cuts being quite commonplace when I was growing up, almost like a weekly event. But also there was less to cut off in the 70s, so it felt less of an inconvenience. Lights, the TV, possibly the cooker, that was about it. I doubt any of us saw it this way at the time, but it now seems like quite a romantic notion. Morris and Terence were at home, and they didn't see it as a romantic notion at all. Morris was there because he was unwell and had to be returned from his football college boarding school, so lights out and no bedroom heating gave him Vietnam-style school flashbacks and wasn't aiding his recovery. He kept staring at his internet-less phone, watching the battery count down. Terence, for his part, couldn't understand the issue at all. We sat in the dark, or tiptoed around trying not to step on an animal, and then at one point he just blurted out, You know Abraham Lincoln's dead, right? It was his bitter social commentary on the fact that we were now living way back in history, and that he wasn't happy with the situation at all. That the place was so dingy was the fault not just of ODF, but also Natalie. I failed to see... How a woman who has spent at least half her adult life seemingly just buying candles could have prepared so poorly for such an eventuality. I can barely remember a time when we've been out and not come back with candles. But in a cruel twist, they're not the right candles. What you need, of course, is the kind of candle I was always forced to light in a church as a kid. I never knew why. And not, apparently, pastel-coloured tea lights with a hint of bergamot. They are utterly useless. Scented tea lights really are a sign that the human race has grown bloated and needs a reboot. What is the point of them? What light do they shed? I must have set up about a hundred of the things. A proper fire hazard it was too. But still, the only way I could direct myself around the dim room was to remember that if I wanted to go to the kitchen, I should head for Hint of Summer Meadow, go left at Vanilla and make a beeline for Forest Fruits.
We tried playing games to pass the time, but that pulled very quickly. Occasionally, the electricity would snap back on and we'd cheer like the war was over, but then it would snap off again, a promise of what might have been. I kept ringing the EDF helpline, which would give a time of when the electricity would be back on. But the time which started off as pinpoint accurate, something absurd like 6.42, would be put back and then become more vague as they abandoned the idea altogether in favour of just leaving a message saying, yeah, we know there's a problem. On the other hand, of course, it was refreshing to spend an evening in front of the warm fire just talking. We laughed a lot, we reminisced, played more games and so on, but eventually Terence had had enough and Morris just carried on staring at his phone battery like it was a ticking bomb. Full power was resumed late on around tenish, and nervously we reset the clocks and the oven and turned the satellite box back on, expecting it all to go again. But life whirred back into place, and Morris gratefully plugged his phone in. That was quite good fun, I said. I don't know why I said that. Yes, Natalie replied, not convinced. But that last hour or so felt really weird. She was right too. It had become actually quite stressful. Even Kipper was now eating a scented tea light, struggling to cope with the whole thing. And it just goes to show, resting isn't all it's cracked up to be either. Thanks very much for listening. I do hope you enjoy it. If you do, like I said earlier, please share it. If you want any information on comedy gigs, on books, on the B&B anything basically I'm open to question please go to my website which is www.ianmore.info thanks